Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 10. We continue our study through this great prophecy to the northern kingdom primarily, but it's for all God's people to see and observe and learn from. The book is ultimately about God's redemption and really particularly about the Gentiles and the forecast of the Gentiles being brought in to the people of God. The first chapters of Hosea, as you will recall, give us a vivid picture uh, that is in the form of Hosea's actual life where he is called to marry an adulterous woman, adulterous before he married her, and then after he married her, turned out to be adulterous still. And then ultimately the picture is despite all of her adultery and her unfaithfulness and her divided heart towards Hosea, despite all that, even though she ends up in slavery, destitute, near death, he redeems her from this. Despite all she had done to him, he redeems her. And that's a picture of what God does for us. We're the adulterous woman. Despite all of our unfaithfulness, God redeems us with the blood of his son. That's the backdrop of the story. But that's the first few chapters. And we have several chapters that we've been studying, chapter at a time, of all the judgments that come. It's really a legal or covenantal reading about the proof of their adultery. So we are not left to think, oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, no, he lays it out. This is how bad this adultery was. And we'll eventually get to the promise of redemption that is ultimately realized in Christ. But for this middle section of Hosea, which I found woefully few sermons about or even much said as it relates to the application of God's people, we have over and over again the various judgments that come because of uh, their legal failing of the covenant God had given them. So this morning, I will read chapter 10 in its entirety, but verse 1 and verse 2 present something a, a touch new. It's, you might say, another perspective on the problem that was existent among Uh, the Israelites of that day, so as to help us see those perils and analyze them and check ourselves against them. Hear God's holy word as I read Hosea chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars, for now they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord, and a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Haven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us! And to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. 
Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people. And all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arb. On the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Let us pray. Lord, we again read these words of judgment in this prophet. And Lord, we recognize that there is a message here for us, that there is a certain sense of connection we can have with people of all ages, especially those people called by your name. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes spiritually to see where we can be uh, properly convicted and encouraged, Lord, to face this challenge that we have in our day that we call affluence or wealth, the things that caused Israel's heart to be divided. Pray that we would see that challenge handled differently in our day by your grace, by the power of your spirit in every individual's life here. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Much of what we find in this chapter is addressed in previous chapters, as you will notice. Uh, The first two verses, though, you probably noticed are really they're given almost as at least a major contributing factor to all the adultery, the spiritual adultery this nation was about. Their literal building of altars to other gods and pillars is referenced here. They're actually constructing places to worship these false gods. And there's even a reference here of the golden calf they used, the the primary golden calf. There are many that were placed about. Uh, But the primary golden calf that they valued so much, God would bring judgment by bringing that calf to a different king, and he just put it on his mantelpiece. And so it speaks of the the deep adultery of the people. But verse 1 and verse 2 gives us a a newer or at least a different perspective on why things had gone where they had gone in the lives of the Israelites. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. These verses will guide our considerations this morning concerning God's word. Verse 1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false, now they must bear the guilt. According to this text, wealth or affluence proved to be a contributing factor at least to their fall into gross idolatry. Instead of using their growing affluence and wealth for the kingdom of God, the glory of God to be expanded and expressed, they used it to build up false idols, to feed their passions. Uh, That's synonymous with doing what they want with it. You see, those gods will let them do whatever they want. And so by building the altars and the pillars, it was a way of saying, we want to contribute to that which gives us free license. So the glory of themselves and their passions and their sensuality and their stuff was more important than the glory of God, despite all the affluence that they were given and given access to. Really what we learn in these two verses is an age-old lesson that bears itself out continually. Wealth or affluence tend to go hand in hand with idolatry. They are not in themselves sinful. They just tend to go hand in hand. So we have to be aware of these things. Affluence or wealth are not sinful in themselves by any means, but are definitely, definitely a great challenge. And what's a challenge? 
A challenge is the ability to break us or make us fail or be defeated. But a challenge can also make us stronger, make us more effective and even better than we already already are. So challenge is not a bad word. It challenges us, these things, as we understand. The striving after money, after stuff, property, possessions, things that money can buy, that can become our preoccupation, essentially, just as they did, idols we erect. Jesus said very clearly, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, I want to tell you, I'm always, always have some trepidation when I talk about this in our day. And I wonder, why do I struggle with such a message? It's clearly scriptural. Uh, I think maybe because personally, I struggle with the same thing. And my guess is that many here do as well. In fact, it's not my guess. I can almost categorically prove this will be a major peril for us as an individuals, families, and as a church. But we'll get there. For now, though, hear this proposition as we read this text, that the possession of wealth or affluence, and I'm going to use those words somewhat interchangeably and explain in a moment why, has always been a challenge for the church in every age. It's always been that way. Now, before I go further, let's define affluence, since I'm using the term so much. Uh, We tend to think of, at least I've always thought of, as affluence being uh, not me, but the people I know that are rich. People that have more than me. That's how I define affluence. And there's always someone that has more than you, so you kind of stay pretty safe. But it literally means, very simply, abundant flow or supply. That's what affluence means. Abundance of property. Now, I'm going to get technical, but I think you'll appreciate this as I try to prove my case. I don't want to just preach to some crowd that doesn't exist. Overall, the term affluent, it is said in the U.S. Census Bureau's commentary portion, overall, the term affluent may be applied to a variety of individuals, households, or other entities, depending on context. Data from the U.S. Census Bureau serves as the main guideline for defining defining affluence. U.S. government data not only reveals the nation's income distribution, but also provides data regarding the demographic characteristics of those to whom the term affluent may be applied. As a country, I think most of us would say and recognize that the world sees the U.S. anyways as a nation as affluent. Now, I think few of us would argue with that fact uh, concerning America's affluence. In fact, even the poorest Americans generally have access to schools health care of some sort, housing, food, and flat-screen TVs and iPods, even among those who are called the poor in our country. The gross domestic product, and these are just facts, of the U.S. is larger than the next two biggest economies combined, China and Japan. The U.S. economy outproduces the combined economies of over 47 poor nations, which make up 53% the population of the world. It's 47 nations. In 2000, the per capita income of the U.S. was 360% higher than the world's average per capita income. Now, how does that relate to the U.S. Census Bureau's information on the U.S., on Kansas, Kansas City, where we are in Johnson County? How about even particular zip codes? I think it's important. I mean, I don't want to preach a message to people It would be terrible if I went into some of the contexts I've been in in my life and preached this message the same way. Put it to you this way. 
The U.S. Census Bureau, 2007. It's the report that's about the 2006 census. The median income divides households in the U.S. evenly in the middle with half of all households earning more than the median income and half of all households earning less than the median. According to the Bureau, the Census Bureau, the median is considerably lower than the average and provides a more accurate representation. If you have a a large number way atop, that will skew the average. So median is a better way to generally get an idea of where we are as a country. Now, I found it interesting, in 2006, the median annual household income. Household income means uh, generally uh, people filing jointly, and that could also mean you have some teenagers in the house and they have to file with you. So it's a household income, not individual incomes. Uh, in, in most cases, our church represents that demographic quite, uh, uh, quite well. I mean, that's who we are, essentially. Lots of families. Uh, and what you have in 2006, the median annual household income in the U.S. Census Bureau was determined to be $48,201. That's the median in the whole country. Kansas ranked 37th in the nation at 44478 And as I read that, I thought, wow, that's, that's an interesting, that's the median of our country. Now, when you start breaking it down and narrowing it down, uh, and, and then to our state, as I just mentioned, you get down to the counties. And I think there's no real secret here that we all know Johnson County is always spoken of as being affluent. And so I wanted to find out what that figure was. And the average in Johnson County is $71,902. So it's almost 30000 more than the, or the median of Kansas in our county. So then I thought I'd go to the source of all truth, which is the Kansas City Star, In March, on March 18th, maybe you saw it, there was, and in their defense, they just took this from the U.S. Census Bureau. So this we can count on here, right? U.S. Census Bureau, right? I mean, who could lie there? At any rate, we have 32 of the highest zip codes in the Kansas City area. Again, we're trying to answer the question, how does affluence affect our spiritual lives? It did in Israel's day, so are we really affluent? Uh, rather than just preach at you, I want to know if this is true. And so we have the 32 zip codes in the Kansas City area, uh, keeping in mind that the average U.S. is 48,000, the average Kansas, or I shouldn't say average, the median is 48, the median in Kansas is 44. Uh, average is probably a little higher is what they say. So out of 32, the top 32 in the Kansas City area, out of 100 people in our directory, and I didn't look at names, just look at zip codes, 80 fall in these 32. That's just the directory, not the mailing list, and not some of you here who aren't members or are not in the directory. So 80 out of the 100 fit into the top 32. My zip code, which is 66062, Olathe, there's over 25 families there, and the average or the median household income there is supposed to be 86,288. That's 66062. Now, I know immediately someone's saying, I don't make that. I know. I understand. I don't either. I'm just simply saying that this is generally true, and that's 66062. Uh, but then when you break them all down, uh, over half the church, almost, almost two-thirds of the church, actually live in the Overland Park area. In, uh, Olathe was ranked 19th where I live on the top 32, and where most people live is in the top 10. And then the number one zip code has a, a, the median household income of 167,000, is 66221. And you know where we are right now? 66221. Right here, where we're standing. Everywhere the lowest in 32 was 76,000. The highest is 167,000. And everywhere in between, I'm just simply saying, it doesn't take a mathematician, an economist, or a genius to say, we're affluent. 
I mean, we've got stuff. We all do. The poorest among us do. We are affluent. This is speaking to us. We've got to address this. And any pastor who would not approach this the way I'm trying to approach it, some way like it, is just derelict in their duties because it's the number one idol that faces us. I believe many things come from it, but we have to address it head on. It's a challenge, and it's a peril, and it's also an opportunity. And I hope we can see that today as we look at God's word together and what it teaches us in these regards. Let's first consider Israel's relationship to affluence in general before we head to the peril of it itself and then the, the, the opportunity of it. Now, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy 8 for a moment. It's a crucial passage in understanding God's warning to his people for all ages. Now, as you're turning to Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament. It was written uh, by Moses. And in particular, it's written... Uh, as a second giving of the law, now that the people of God had gone through the wilderness, uh, you remember backing up, Abraham was filthy rich. I mean, it says in Genesis 13, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. He passed his inheritance on to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then uh, eventually Joseph uh, was called of God to bring Israel, the people of God, into a new phase where they would be enslaved, a time of humbling. A, a time of a breaking, bringing them low and a trust in God. And the God miraculously, through raising up Moses, brings them out out of total slavery. They own, no, they own nothing but the clothes on their back, and he brings them out. So starting from absolutely nothing, the people of God come out, and then he begins to bless them. And before he blesses them, he gives them an important warning that I want to look at with you for a moment, because we'll refer to it again. Deuteronomy 8, one. He's given the law. He's reminded the people of God of what they are called to do as he's ready to send them into a land that is rich, that is fertile, that is flowing with milk and honey. Uh, they will be affluent when they get there. Nothing sinful about that itself. They will be wealthy when they get there. Uh, Deuteronomy 8 says, and, and follow as I read, starting at verse 1, the whole commandment that I command to you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord God swore to give to your fathers. You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you recognize that? Jesus uses it again. But I hope you see where Moses is heading. God is heading through Moses. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot, nor did your foot, foot did you not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart, that as man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. He prepares them to trust and rely upon them. Him. Verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in the ways and by, in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. I mean, the only thing missing here is tomatoes. <laughs> a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. I will not make anyone feel guilty for being affluent. 
Guilt will come from the Holy Spirit if we're not using that affluence. Conviction, loving conviction will come. But let's continue. Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the, in the end. In verse 17, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy sets the stage for the passing of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Joshua would lead the nation into the promised land, capture it, divide it among the tribes, and establish God's kingdom presence on earth. For all the many good years and good kings that Israel had, there can be no question that from the time of Solomon, who chose to build his own house before the temple, Israel struggled with its view and handling of wealth. We come to the passage today in Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Blowing off what was said, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might are of my hand, I have gotten this wealth. So we come to the peril of affluence that is so prevalent in the life of the church in the Old Testament. It has been prevalent in the life of the church ever since. It's no wonder that Scripture has 2,350 verses in the Bible uh, that, about handling money and possessions. How we handle our affluence directly influences our relationship with the Lord. There's no question about that. Uh, possessions will always compete with our devotion to the Lord. Much of our life revolves around it. But let's not forget, Hosea 10, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. If poverty is accompanied with physical dangers, and it is, then certainly prosperity is accompanied with spiritual dangers. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, it goes back before Jesus' specific revelation. David, who knew wealth in his day, David penned in Psalm 49, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies... He will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him, for though he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see the light. There's a, 
immense, there's a temporalness to it that if we just get out of ourselves for a moment and realize how short all this is, we would see how fleeting and how the moths devour the things that we so treasure. Solomon, of all people, was used of God to pen these words in Proverbs 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. You can't buy yourself out of judgment. Proverbs 11, verse 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Proverbs 28, 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Then we come to the time of the New Testament. These are all others. Again, there's 2,340 more verses, and I'll read for you this morning. But Luke 12 says it very vividly. And Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says also, as he's giving that parable of the seeds falling on different grounds, one of the places the seed of the gospel falls, and look what squeezes it out. Luke, or Mark 4, 18 through 19. The others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke the word. Luke 9, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? But he forfeits himself, his soul, and other versions. Apostle James speaks vividly uh, to the rich in their need for care with their riches that God has entrusted to them. But Timothy also, the, the young pastor, hears these words, but if we have food and clothing, with, the, with these we'll, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I could read many, many more verses. I think you know, my brothers and sisters, how much God encourages us to beware of the perils of affluence. There is a book written uh, in the secular market, written by someone who's not a believer, who notices the challenge of affluence, particularly in Britain and the United States. Uh, this person, Abner Offer, wrote a book called The Challenge of Affluence that was released in 2006. The central thesis of the book is this, that rising living standards in Britain and America have engendered impatience, which undermines well-being. The fruits of affluence, according to him, are bitter ones. They include addiction, obesity, family breakdown, and mental disorders. Many things that are not largely seen in places that aren't as affluent. Granted, he's not a believer. I'm not giving more credit than needs to be given, but there's clearly some truth to these things. Another person, Brian Griffiths, a believer who wrote a great book on wealth creation and the importance of it, how it can be done well, also gives this caution in his book. He says the mere fact of owning wealth tends to produce a spirit of arrogance and self-reliance. Success tends to breed a philosophy of possessiveness. Things become mine, my money, my account, my portfolio, my holdings, my property, my company, my workforce. Wealth gives people a false sense of security. It deadens the life of the spirit. It makes people unresponsive to the good news of the gospel. Clearly, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. 
Matthew 6:24, I tell you it is, or Matthew 12:24, I tell you again, it's easier for the camel, a camel, to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And he simply means their reliance is so steadfastly on themselves, it's difficult for them to see a need for the Savior. Okay, the perils of affluence are clear. But brothers and sisters, we are where we are. God's placed us here by his will to use something that can be used well. We have a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous opportunity. I've often wondered, honestly, when God called me to this church, I didn't grow up in this kind of neighborhood. And I, to be honest with you, felt a little uncomfortable. I didn't know what to, I think I know. It's to compel each other to use this for God's kingdom purposes, for his priorities, that we together can do this. We have to hold one another accountable to. We can't uh, back off of such discussions. We have to say this is where God has placed us, a special time in the world to use this stuff that God's given us for the furtherance of his kingdom and his glory on earth. That's the opportunity that affluence affords, that we can take advantage of for his glory. Uh, Let me just cite a few verses and then talk some more about opportunities we have in this regard. In Ecclesiastes, you know Solomon, who is as rich as they come, uh, he wrote about really the, the vanity of the love of money itself. But listen to what he says, because I think we can gain some direction. He said, He who loves money, in Ecclesiastes 5, will not be satisfied with money, nor will he who loves wealth with his income. This is all vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to set them to his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep, and they're anxious. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. That's key. Riches were kept by his owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in bad venture. God takes it away if that's what you're going to do with it. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his own toil that he may carry away in his hand. The love of stuff brought about discipline there. But if we would say that the riches were kept by his owner to his hurt, what if those riches were not kept by their owner to our hurt, but rather used and given for the glory of God? Jesus says in Luke twelve sixteen. But God said to him, Fool, this is about the man who stored up all his crops, and instead of sharing it or giving out more, he just built bigger barns. And he had all the stuff in storage, but his life was called for, and God says, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That's the key. For ourselves or for God, how do we utilize what God has given us stewardship over? I kind of put it to you this way. Pretend you go to that place that, if I believed in purgatory, this would be the place. Chuck E. Cheese. Okay, you, you go in there with your kids. Pretend you have your kids and you, no matter how much you have, you have the ability, everyone here, to buy a lot of tokens. You can buy a ton of tokens. Your kids can't really tell how many tokens you can buy. In their mind, it's endless. So you buy them each 100 tokens and you give them their tokens. Uh, but it's time to eat. Uh, you ask for the tokens back to hold them. They haven't used them all, so hold them while we eat because you want them to go wash their hands and then you have the tokens. Uh, So they give you back the tokens and you sit and you have your $5 piece of pizza. You eat it and then 
they go back to playing, you give them some more tokens. Perhaps you have a bunch of tokens left when you leave and you take them with you uh, for another time. Now, there's a sense in which that parallels what God has done for us. It is endless how much he can give us. He gives us what we need to be used for the right purpose. But when our attitude is, no, I'm not giving it back. I want them. I've got to have them. Instead of trusting the one who gave them to you in the first place, who can give you all the more he wants, but we stingily want to have back the five tokens we have that can only be used in one place of his designation. But we hold it back because it's ours. No, I'll eat lunch with them in my hand. I'll, eat, I'll take them with me. I'll keep them in my room under my pillow and see how long they get lost and where they are. I mean, it's not that dissimilar when we view our wealth this way. God's given us this stuff. He calls us to give it back, to propel it into use. And we say, no, it's mine. I give 10%. Now, brothers and sisters, what is 10%? I mean, it's not much. It's a good starting point. It's a grace that God gives us. But 10%, is that our goal? To give back to God 10% of all that he's given us with? I would venture most car payments add up to more than 10%. That's what we would give to God. There are several things I would suggest to you. They're personal to me because I had an awakening regarding this a couple years ago. Personally, Sherry and I did. We always thought we did fine with it, and mostly it's because we actually were well below that line. And so it was relatively easy to tithe and more or less you know, work, move along and feel pretty good about ourselves. Then we took Crown Ministries small group study and realized how small and unbiblical our view was. Tithe and do whatever else you want with the rest of it as long as you tithe. Praise God for that small group course that I went in, went through. I have some suggestions for you. Three actions for every person to take in light of this. If you're married, take these with your spouse. You must take them with your spouse. You're not one, you're one flesh. First, honestly assess your spiritual health in relationship to your wealth or affluence, as I've just spoken of it today. I fully expect some of you will be offended by what I said. Take that as probably the Holy Spirit convicting you. I could have said something biblically wrong. Point that out to me. But if it's not that, if you read the verses the same way I read them, it's most likely more something making you sensitive because you know something needs to change. Honestly assess your spiritual health. How has affluence affected me? Be honest. Discuss this with your spouse. I know what helped us, especially being students for the first five or six years of our married life, is to honestly say to each other, is my walk, is our walk with Jesus more vibrant today than it was 10 years ago? If it's not, honestly ask, how has affluence perhaps affected this? I mean, I remember the days in my life when literally I was 100 bucks short, 62 bucks short to pay my bill at Moody. And I had no idea where it was going to come from and no, no, no one to call immediately for it. And you're out of class the next Monday. I get in an elevator and literally a guy hands me an envelope with the exact amount of money and it gets off. I've never seen him again. I've got story after story like that of God's provision that I don't have as many of now. So 10 years ago, were you closer to Jesus than you are today? And if you're not, be honest as to why that may be the case. Could be other things, but maybe that has something to do with it. How does affluence relate do I truly acknowledge how perilous my affluence can be? Do I lose sleep over finances? I mean, some are losing sleep right now. But honestly, is, is that okay? Do I have a budget? Here's, a, here's an important one that's helped us immensely. Have I determined how much is enough? That's huge. And the further you are with your raising of your children and so forth, the more important this it is that you establish between you and your spouse how much is enough so that you know without question it's God's will that you give the rest away. 
This is how much enough. Now, now everyone's at that stage. That's, that's kind of an advanced stage as you're growing and you're figuring out expenses for your kids. But if your kids are out and you're at the opportunity, honestly say, how much is enough? And everything else, Lord, is to be given away. I can't believe you're saying this, Pastor. I'm saying it. What's more important, building altars or the glory of God produced through something he can give you the ability to do? Ultimately, the first step may be to repent. For us as a family, what we have tried to do, and we are certainly no, uh, we struggle just the way everyone here does. I'm a materialist at heart just like anybody who lives in so much stuff. I want new stuff. I want, you know, there's, there's no way I'm excusing myself. I just know that we try to have this discussion over and over that when we get too much stuff in our house, we drive it over to the Salvation Army, literally. If I haven't worn it in a couple months, I'm not going to wear it again. Or I probably can't fit into it anymore. Bring it to the Salvation Army. Get rid of this stuff. If you've got some electronic device that's been sitting there for more than a few months, you're not using it. Turn it into something that can be given to someone. Uh, just on a basic level. Kids, you've got a lot of toys that you're not using. There are kids that do not have them. So go through your stuff and decide what it is that you use anymore. If you don't use it anymore, give it to someone who could use it. Everyone is involved with this from the beginning. I just know this, and I'm not saying this is theologically sharp, I'm saying when Jesus comes back, I don't want too much in my bank account. I'm serious when I say that. As a church, I want us to be careful, but we don't want to have too much that we have to say, well, we were building this for that. We had bigger barns. Uh, we need it in case this happened. He will come back. Let's be sure that all that he has given us is used for him. But the second thing I would encourage you all to do this is longer term because you'll have to plan for it. But everyone should take the Crown Ministries 10-week small group study as soon as you can. It's the best discipleship course there is for this very important issue. Ask anyone who takes it. And if you ask them, many will say, oh, I didn't really want to take it. My wife kind of made And every one of them say, I'm so glad that I did. Helps us gain a biblical view of money, possessions, affluence. Gives a total picture of what it is to be stewards of God's resources. It teaches us how to give, save, and live so that we're not sliding into idolatry, divided hearts. It helps you learn how much is enough. And I'm not saying stop creating wealth. I'm saying how much is enough for you to live, and then that creation of wealth is for the furtherance of the kingdom. That's what it's for. No question. Thirdly, start giving now. Don't wait until you think... Now, I'll give when I get this debt paid off. Listen, the debt you probably have is because of a skewed view to begin with. So you've got to start changing things now by giving. The tithe's a good starting point, no doubt. But where should I give? Well, very clearly, I think the Scripture says to give to God's work. Now, the God's work is manifold. It has to do with the worship of God. It has to do with the reaching out with the gospel message and the application of the gospel to all of life. It also has to do with mercy ministry, which is part of expressing the gospel, the, the relief of the poor. So you've got God, the worship of God rightly, outreach about the message of God, and then relief of the poor. All these things go together. Every church has to be part of all these things. And every family should find ways in which they are part of it. Now, the best way you could be part of it is when you're part of a local church that's doing this. By bringing your tithe to the storehouse, by giving to that church that's faithful with those things and demand faithfulness in those things, that's the best clearinghouse we can come to with the most trust for it. Transparency about where it goes. You can see with your eyes what happens with it. That's the first best place. And I want you to think about how this can be lived out even in our own church's life. Uh, our church is only, we've only been in this property 11 years. We're a young church. But by God's grace, 
He's brought us to 70% of equity of everything you see here. The only thing we have a debt obligation on still is basically this property, half of what its value is $3 million. We are not mired in debt. We can function with what we are being given. And if you didn't increase much what you give, we'd more or less be able to move along like we're moving on. And we've made long-term plans about this. But there's no one of us elders who thinks that that would be the spiritually right thing for our church to do is to stay where we're at when it regards retiring this. In fact, there's no reason in my mind why we cannot in the next five years totally retire that and continue to build up the rest of those, those components, which is worship. This is part of the facility that was just built a once-in-a-lifetime thing a church does. Outreach, which is increasing our missionaries, the amount of money we give to missionaries, improving local missions, more to be done here, and then vastly improving our relief of the poor. We do this now in smaller levels, all three. But there's no reason why we can't just blow the top off of all of these as we shake the idol and put on the glory of God in our minds and our hearts and what we do with what we have. There are many other good causes you can give to or use your abilities with, the stuff you have now. But start giving now. That's what we have to do. And if it's so hard, then there's some... There's definitely some tie to the idolatry of this moment, this peril taking hold in our own lives. There are great visions we have as a church that I think as we become freer in this regard, we'll be able to expand to see our, us being better stewards of our existing property, improve the pastoral oversight of the various ministries here already, improve and involve more of the congregation in the various ministries there are using their gifts, establish local mercy ministry outreach to the poor of Kansas City, Continue to foster the, the building and development of our school, which is ultimately a long-term investment in changing culture. At an evening school ministry that trains people who need more training in the pastoral ministries they already have, as well as lay people who want to take it. Look forward to planting daughter churches in the Kansas City area. Move towards designating. This is my big dream. I just pray for the day where 50% of everything that people give goes out in impacting outreach, evangelistic, mercy, ministry. Just half of what we give is going to go outside of us. I don't think we're that far. I really don't. But it's going to demand every one of us to read Hosea 10.1 and really consider it. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. And his country, as his country improved, he improved his pillars. But here's the key, brothers and sisters, and I close with this encouragement to you. Verse 2 of Hosea 10 says this, Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. Listen, I know you. I know most of you personally. Your heart is not false. God has redeemed you. We are different than what happened at Israel's stage at this time. The opportunity for those with redeemed hearts to see this as a warning that encourages them is, is profound in what it can do in our lifetime even is amazing. And we want to see the next generation, enjoy the fruit of this generation, but not rest on it. And if they follow our example, they'll also go forth, not building bigger barns as such, but with that kind of vigilance about the kingdom, about the glory of God, about Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that when material life is abundant, it is easy to forget the source of all life. We confess that our hearts can sometimes be divided, and we do not want that, Lord. Lord, give us total devotion to you. Lord, we do not despise your great blessings upon us. We just don't want to make money and stuff affluence our idols.
We want to value Jesus supremely, not our appetites. God, make us stewards of your manifold resources so that your glory may be spread on this earth. Renew our hearts and our devotion this day. Unleash your people for the expansion of your kingdom glory here and across the earth. In Christ's name, amen.